We are back. Well, sort of. We've been hard at work on the new season of Blamo. And by the way, while I was looking through it all, I realized we've done over 250 episodes. So if you haven't dug through those archives, there's gold in them hills. But what on earth? The world of podcasts and menswear has changed a ton since 2016. And the show has grown a ton over the years too, thanks to all of you. And we've even introduced our members-only episodes on Patreon called Blamo Extra. If you're new here, Blamo Extra is where we really get into the weeds about menswear and clothes. It's for the real heads, and it's co-hosted by Rob Lim, our community manager from Slack and Patreon. But look, sometimes you gotta kick down the paywall. So this week, we're putting out the entire episode instead of our usual preview. Rob and I chat with the legendary author, personality, model, cool guy, you name him, Jason Jules, about his life, his career in the music business, and his incredible new book, Black Ivy, A Revolt in Style. This was just a wonderful interview because, look, I mean, if you listen to Blamo, you, you get it. You know, we kind of, we, we go through their life, but we really got into it with Jason. And I mean, we talk about his, his life in the music business. By the way, Jamiroquai, hello, are we out there? It's, it's incredible. So I'm so excited for all of you to hear this. So without further ado, here's our chat with Jason Jules. You sort of transcend both of these worlds because I think, you know, for some people, you're like the Drake's model. For other people, you are this, you know, incredible author and, you know, and this tastemaker. And then other people, you're like Jamiroquai's PR guy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for other people, I'm just this guy who goes into shops and doesn't buy anything. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, welcome to the show. You're, you're, you're at home here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be honest, that's one of my, my, I don't know, my greatest pastimes is to popping into menswear stores, chatting to the staff, looking at the clothes, discussing the clothes, and then leaving. Because, mm. um, you know, I can't buy everything. <laughs> well, yeah, but it's, it's fun to look. I mean... It is fun to look. And, it's, yeah. and you know, you can, you can tell somebody who's into menswear by the fact that they don't look at the price, they just feel the, the fabric all the time. And um, I think that's, that's kind of where I'm at, really. You know, I like buying clothes. I like wearing clothes. But I, I, I'm not really what you'd call a, a consumer, if you know what I mean. Well, I think, you know, and Rob, I'm curious your take on this, too. I think when you get more comfortable with what your style is, I think you're, you, you're more of a consumer, but more of like someone who is looking to further educate themselves. Because I would say you're more of a consumer than ever if you're still going to stores because you're trying to stay informed. You're trying to, you know, further refine your taste on that. But like, maybe you're not going to be as experimental, perhaps, as what you once were. Yeah, definitely. Um, You know, I think that's a great point of like, you just want to feel and touch them, you know, something that you can only experience in store. Um, And I love talking. I, I do the same thing. I go into stores. I have no intention in buying anything, but I'm just so interested in how um, clothes are merchandised and like sort of the stories that we build around them. Yeah. Um, and also to experience them in, in person. So I'm always just trying to figure out like, like, what is the purpose behind this? Like sort of what does it have to add to the conversation? Yeah. Well, especially now every brand and like Jason, I'm curious about this is like, is a storyteller. Like, every, you know, like Drake's for some people just to kind of pick on them for a moment. Yes, they make clothes, but they, especially with 
like the visuals of you and stuff with James Harvey Kelly. I mean, it, it's it's a story. It's a lifestyle. I mean, it's 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 basically what Ralph Lauren's done for the past I don't know fifty plus years. I mean, it's it's this world you kind of want to be in, and and then you're like, oh yeah, they sell clothes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's I think yeah, definitely Ralph Lauren has has been the master of that forever. And um, you know, people kind of try and criticize him as not being a designer, but he's a storyteller. Yeah. And in terms of menswear, you don't really need to to redesign you know the button down shirt you just don't you kind of need to reposition it and give people a, a new reason to wear it and to make it exciting again and i think that's what people like drakes do they kind of give a, a, a new edge a new meaning that kind of excites us and we want to get that particular button down shirt yeah i mean it's it's what, what was your kind of experience with clothes pre everyone else's understanding of you. I mean, cause I, I think, I mean, we don't have to get into like the, the earliest parts of your life, but like, where did you kind of get more into clothes? Um, well, I was, I kind of got into clothes, not the earliest part of my life, but since I was like four years old, really, I've been into not dressing up. Cause I, I don't think I've ever been into dressing up. I've been to, been into the visual side of clothing. Mm. Um, my parents were both uh, clothes makers. So my dad was a tailor and he trained as a tailor in the West Indies. And my mum was a seamstress. Or when she grew up, she kind of the first thing she did was become a seamstress. Oh my god! And they actually met in tailoring school. And my dad went to came to the UK when he was like twenty. My mum followed a few years later, and she ended up working in you know what we would consider to be now kind of sweatshops in East London, mm-hmm. sewing clothes. And um, but my dad could never get a job as a tailor, even though he's fully trained. You know, he didn't stand a chance. So he ended up working in Ford's factory as a, a foundry worker, which is like the, the hardest possible job in a, in a car manufacturing, you know, environment. But for me, it was, you know, clothes all day, every day. I, I just kind of, when my mum had me and my sister, she basically started working at home as a piece worker, you know, sewing sleeves and collars and all this stuff. People deliver them to the house. and. You know, me and my sister would be sitting on the floor, even before I could speak, kind of like just turning these collars inside out with knitting needles or whatever. Right. Just kind of surrounded by by clothes or pieces of clothing. And um, I don't know, I think I kind of got into it from from then. You know, my dad would work at Ford, he'd come home miserable, but then, you know, he'd get into a conversation about clothing and his, his eyes would light up. He'd become enthusiastic about something. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of meant a lot, you know, even though I didn't understand the, the whole you know, scheme of things, I think from that early age, I, I really knew that clothing had a kind of a, a power that other stuff didn't. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's, <clears throat> and, and so like throughout this, you're kind of also, because I think it's interesting in the context of your parents, right? Because that puts it into, you are understanding it to understand them first. Because my dad was also really into clothes, but he was also in, you know, he grew up in Texas. And so he, he was into like bolo ties and right. he, for him, like cowboy boots, but like boots in general, I mean like, Oh man, Jeremy, you're almost old enough to get your first pair of cowboy boots. And I'm like, what the, like, what is he talking about? But it was like this, this rite of passage in this like cultural identity of, of becoming someone, you know, it's almost like a bar mitzvah or something for someone's like, you're old enough to get your cowboy boots, you know? And that's, but that's so fascinating to, to me that that was happening. And, you know, were they kind of encouraging this further for you? Were they oh, like, Oh, no, let's no, teach no. you. <laughs> <laughs> the opposite. 
at all. In fact, I I was never probably still not old enough to have my first pair of leather sole shoes. Okay. I kept on asking my parents, can I have a pair of leather sole shoes? That was the, you know, the rites of passage for me, even like six or seven years old. And I was just never ready for those shoes <laughs> until of course I could afford my own. Um, so yeah, they, they saw it as a kind of a hiding to nowhere, basically that if you were into clothing, then as a profession, as a, as a thing, then you'd only just like end up poor and disappointed. So mm. they really wanted me to have a, a profession, which meant literally anything that wasn't kind of creative. Um, so that was kind of like the, the, the kind of the, the level of friction that continued pretty much through, you know, through my adult life with my parents, basically. <laughs> you know, I'm into creative stuff, superficial stuff, let's call it. And they were determined for me to do something realistic like, I don't know, I think at one point my parents wanted to become a carpenter, you know, like to get a trade, something that you can actually, you know, take with you and, uh, or, you know, work in a factory or something. But that was never, you know, I, to be honest, I never really had a, a full-time job in my entire life. So, you know, they, they definitely kind of were heading in the wrong direction. And this is one. in uh, England? Did you grow up in England? Yeah, this is in East London in, in the UK. Yeah. Yeah. Pre, pre pre it being like the hot spot that it is now, I assume. <laughs> yeah, definitely pre it being, you know, the place to to go and, and kind of discover your 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 bliss. Yeah. Because, um it's, it's it, you know, there's still elements, a lot of elements of East London that are pretty rough, very working class, mm-hmm. very edgy in a in a in a real way. And um that's that was my that is my background. So, and how did you find your way? Because I mean, I know that you worked a bit in the music industry and stuff through there. Like, wh- where did that kind of come in? Well, my thing was I was, like I said, super into fashion. I was into, at least I thought I was into fashion. I was really into clothing. And the first opportunity I got to kind of get close to it as a, as a business was to do PR. I wanted to become a stylist, or rather, yeah. I didn't. I didn't want a proper job. Right. So, I figured, what can I do that isn't actually, you know, uh, boring, but involves something that I really like? And so I struck on this idea of becoming a stylist. And in order to do that, I was told that I needed to get into a PR company and and work with loads of other stylists and editors. And then one of them will, like, give me a job. But I'll also understand how, you know, the industry works, et cetera. Mm. So I started working with this PR company called Lynn Franks, which was pretty much the best PR company in the country at the time um, in terms of fashion without any question. And, and Lynn, to me, is, you know, a legend, a genius, like a constant inspiration. So I was, you know, I found myself in the right place. But what I also found is that I wasn't cut out for fashion. Everybody was wearing black. Everyone was doing these air kisses. <laughs> it, it was like just this other world to me. So you know, I was there for literally 12 months. And once I left, the only thing that I had kind of on the horizon was, was clubbing, because that's pretty much all I did for, you know, most of my teams is go to clubs. So I ended up organizing some jazz clubs. Oh. Wow. And that's, but I used my kind of PR education in order to do so. So I, you know, I was never a, a club promoter. I was always a, you know, a club PR. That, that was my kind of title. Mm-hmm. Um, slightly more glamorous, I thought, than a club promoter. So I basically organized clubs, and through that, I met a hell of a lot of people. 
who, you know, bands, DJs, musicians, etc. And um, that drew me into becoming a, a music peer. That's amazing. And I mean, it, it, it's always funny because, you know, for so many people, like their, their story is just, it's very natural, right? Where it's like, well, I don't really, yeah, I mean, we were just friends. We were, you know, and like, but who, who were some of the clients that you were working with, if you don't mind? Um, well, Tamara Quake, Soul to Soul, uh, Brand New Heavies, uh, Paul Weller. Um, oh, shit. Yeah. Jerry Dammers um, from the specials. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, uh, Desiree, who, you know, is completely been lampooned and, and uh, you know, in a, in a really horrible way. But I still stand by the fact that she is an amazing artist and, you know, deserves a ton of respect. Yeah. And we, we worked with her basically at the point where she'd done her first album and it was like seen as a very kind of mainstream product and she was seen as a mainstream artist. But she didn't have a, a, a core audience, really. Mm. You know, she was a pop artist who didn't have a, any real credibility in terms of like her market. So our job was basically to reposition her and to get people to, to understand what she was really about, which is basically a, a black folk singer. Mm. Um, of, you know, folk as in the West Indian or Caribbean roots of folk, as opposed to the, you know, the American roots. And, um, and we did that. And that's what led her to be huge in the States for a while, et cetera. So it was, you know, it was a really nice project to work on as, you know, likewise working with, with Jamiroquai, et cetera. So, but yeah, it's, a lot of it was basically on, based on who you know, on kind of hanging out with people, um, them saying they want to do something and you thinking, you know, can I help you? That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And, and then like, as you're kind of progressing through this, what was like, you know, were you like still refining your own style? I mean, cause I think for, you know, you, you have this very kind of distinct fluid style of just like, a, you know, classic menswear. I mean, it's, what were you wearing around that time? I, I kind of, you know, I think I, I had this, I'm sure I dressed very badly relative to what I, how I thought I looked, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So I was cons- I've consistently been into clothes. I've consistently, you know, gone to vintage stores. Um, I've probably bought more clothes than anyone else I know. <laughs> um, and I haven't thrown anything away. Oh, so wow. Okay. A ton of clothes. The archive um, sale. Let's go. <laughs> the archive does exist. Yes. In various places. Um, but I don't know. I thought I was into, modernism i thought i was into jazz um mm. bit of a beatnik mm-hmm. so kind of these cultural things that i had going on in my head and i would try and kind of funnel them into a particular ways of dress mm. you know one particular shop that was really important was the john simon shop in covent garden that you know they basically sell traditional american clothing and ivy league clothing and mm. John and the guys there were like the best dressed people on the planet, as far as I was concerned. And they basically used to go to the States, buy a ton of stuff that most of, you know, American guys would ignore, which is basically classic Americana, bring it back to the UK and, and sell it to a very small, but, you know, very kind of, I'd say, discerning group of people who just liked Ivy League clothing. And mm. so he was like um, a really important kind of figure in in that world but also people like um i don't know there's like a group of us who were just basically into jazz music and so we kind of dressed in in kind of playful ways but inspired by that by those you know blue note albums etc so 
this is a little bit of a, a, a sidebar here, but why is it, because I view this too, that for many people, jazz music is like the, the highest art of music understanding and culture. Like what, what is it about jazz? Because I, first off, I do love jazz music, but I think, you know, if you mention someone else, oh man, I'm into jazz. They, it's like, I mean, it's an immediate like filtering and, you know, language yeah. that is, uns- I mean, what, what is it? It's so funny, isn't it? Cause yeah. when, when I was a kid, I, I went to the library and got some jazz records. The first thing I was like 13, the first thing I got was a Billie Holiday record and it was so horrendous. It was so, it was like smoking for the first time. It's like <laughs> the worst thing ever. It's like, what on earth do people see in this? <laughs> I just couldn't be- believe that this was, was supposed to be, like you say, the thing to listen to. Yeah. But then after a while, I kind of, I don't know, I kind of figured out that actually isn't that complicated. You know, it's not that deep. So and once you figure that out, it's really kind of easy to, to get into, I think. I mean, for us, we we danced to jazz. We, you know, we listened to lots of Blue Note records and mm-hmm. there were these kind of amazing rhythms, repetitive beats that you could just dance to. Mm-hmm. And so it was like this really joyous stuff that you, you listen to. But also, you know, the artists, the musicians dress super well in, in, a, in our world, super well. So it was like this whole culture that we, we embraced. But I think you're, you're right. I mean, the, I think the problem with, with jazz is that it's been kind of taken out of context and kind of abstracted to the point where it is this intellectual pursuit. And actually it doesn't have to be, you know, it's a really kind of emotional, guttural expression. And somehow we've given it this kind of intellectual casing that makes it really, you know, unavailable to most people. So I, I come across people who say, you know, I'm, I'm still trying to understand jazz. And actually there's, there's not that much to understand. You know? mm. Yeah. I mean, it's simple. true. I mean, it kind of is, uh, to me, um, kind of how far you want to go down. Because certainly, especially starting in the 40s, right, it mm. became kind of a, a classically modern art form where it's kind of, the more you kind of know about the history, the more you can understand the way that a player is kind of subverting or playing against that or, um, you know, kind of evolving the conversation. But I agree, it's, it's a bit like wine, right? Wine's another thing that you just mentioned. I like wine and people just like freak out. They're like, I'm unworthy to enjoy wine. I'm like, it's mm. alcohol. It's but but it's it's a drink. It me. What's up? What's so hard about drinking? You know, enjoying a drink. <laughs> what the hell are the are the sulfites? How am yeah, I supposed I mean, to I understand think, these things? Come on. I guess you know, knowing chord <laughs> progressions or like Western harmony might help you appreciate some jazz, but it's not required like a, a necessary requisite to to enjoying it. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's levels of pleasure, isn't there? You know, it's like how deep do you want to go? But ultimately, you could listen to a love supreme, not know who it's by, not know exactly what it's about and still potentially enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I did a summer program at Berkeley college of music and cause my previously I was all about trying to be a musician and that's why I'd moved to New York and all that. And I remember, I mean, it was just the snobbery of, you know, someone had asked me some of the jazz stuff I liked and I was like, Oh, I really like Coltrane. And I also like, um, Howlin' Wolf and they were like, uh, <clears throat> first off, Howlin' Wolf is blues. And I was like, well, uh, yeah, I I like, and they're like, and Coltrane is like amateur, and I was like, what? Oh, yeah, I mean, it was just by by these just turds who were just trying to, you know, size me up on that, and they were just like, yeah, well, well, which 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 live show? I'm like, well, I just like some of the album. They're like, no, if you like albums, no, yeah, it's about the show. 
So yeah, that's that's funny that you that you say that because there, there's something in there. But I think the style and stuff too, and you know, all of this time, and obviously, you know, I do want to talk about your book. Where is the book start to come in from this? Because you know, we're as you're kind of piecing and seeing these things in your in your career in the music industry and and PR and you know, are you starting this book at this time? I think the, the thing about the book is that. You know, people ask me how long it took me to write that particular mm. book. And it's it's kind of like always been in my head. Mm. You know, the idea that there are these people wearing these particular clothes, but they but the clothes become kind of invisible after a while and people don't don't recognize what the clothes, what the function of, of those clothes actually are. Mm. To the point where actually it it reverses and people think that the the clothes are a counter-revolutionary and actually conservative and aspiring to something that they're they're really not. And I've always kind of I've always been aware of the the idea that that clothing is is a language. You know, it's like what are you trying to say with these clothes? Like you say, it's not really just about how they look. It's, it's what you're trying to communicate through this this particular style of clothing mm-hmm. or through your own style of clothing. And so it got it kind of struck me that. Actually, there needs to be like a, I don't know, kind of like a, a, a re a repositioning in a, in a way of how we saw that period of time and what those clothes were about. Because not only because of that period of time, but because of how it kind of um, the repercussions of now, if you know what I mean. Mm. So if you see a black guy wearing a suit now, contemporarily, you'll have a, a certain set of assumptions about him that may not be right, but mm. but primarily based on on that period of time and how people saw black people dressed then if you know what i mean because a lot of people thought that the civil rights movement was a failure they thought it was a a kind of a, a compromise period and that the black panther movement was the more realistic authentic period um but my argument is you can't have one without the other and the risks that those guys took you know pretty much evidenced by the number of assassinations the the the, the fires the bombings etc cetera, etc cetera, that took place during that period of time. You know, it's it's obvious that they weren't cowards and they weren't compromising and they weren't aspiring to to appease mm. the, the mainstream, if you know what I mean. In fact, what they were doing was challenging the mainstream. So it kind of, you know, so I always had this this idea from from very early on, reading, you know, stuff like Dick Hebdige, you know, revolts in a revolt in, into style, that clothing was a really powerful kind of communicator if only we just kind of looked at it as such and so that's what I kind of did with the book just looked at the clothing so really it is you know very much like this show it's about clothes but it's not defined by the clothes if you know what I mean yeah I mean that that makes and that was actually I reread the book um recently in preparation for this conversation and what just really struck me is like it felt like something that had been thought through very deeply so I imagine this was kind of something you had in your head, like for some number of years, if not decades, um, because the way it's it's laid out, yeah, yeah. you know, there's such a rich not only historical context, but in the way you kind of present creators of artwork against their artwork. So you, it seems like you really make a point of, you know, you're featuring uh, Leroy, Leroy Jones or Baraka um, alongside like a playbill for what he was, you know, working on at that time. Um, and it just seems like it it invites this interesting idea of like, you know, is an individual style like can it be separated from the person and can that 
be separated from the work that they produce. And and from what they're trying to say through that work and through their their own politics, right, yeah. be it a capital P. And then it kind of transitions. Mm-hmm. Like it yeah, feels like, yeah. you know, you kind of go with these public creators and then, you know, I just I noted that the the longest chapter is the one on music, so that that tracks with what you're saying before. <laughs> um and uh and then it kind of segues into the politics, but it, it it takes an interesting and to me emotionally affecting stop through the Norfolk seventeen. Who are these people who are not, you know, they were did not intend to become public figures, but they were just through the circumstances um put in that situation. And along the way, you just see how each individual expressed themselves. Yeah. Yes. One thing I wanted to say though was that the the structure of the book mm-hmm. owes a lot to the real art press guys and to Graham. Mm. So I can't take full credit for that because the structure, one of the reasons I chose real art press as the publishers because of what they do and what they do is, is really good. You know, they're a, a photographic mm-hmm. um, coffee table masterclass in a sense. And so I went to them and Graham specifically, because he's an expert in that, you know, in Ivy League clothing mm. and they came up with a lot of, of the shaping of the book. And I came up with, you know, the context and the, the backstory and the, the themes and all the rest of it. But it was really, you know, kind of a, a meeting of minds in that, in that sense. So I can't take full credit for, you know, the fact that it flows in a certain way because a lot of it was kind of based on previous books they've already done and ideas that they brought to the table specifically for this particular book. So I think there's also something to that. Um, I mean, there, there's so many amazing entry points for, for the book, but like one of the things that kind of stuck out to me too is how close, you know, fortunately and unfortunately, like almost democratized the, the right to be heard and seen. And I think, you know, for many people, um, you know, for myself and not that I've been through any of the stuff that some of the people you'd mentioned have been through, but like my rite of passage to be in a room was usually like, okay, I don't have the education. I don't have the money. I don't have these other things, but I can wear the same clothes as these other people I know. And therefore like I'm justified in my presence here. And I think that's something that, you know, for many people, even unconsciously, they don't realize that that's why sometimes they might be into clothes is because they want to be seen, they want to be loved, they want to be heard. And like that to me is some of the most like beautiful and almost like holy things that happen is like, no, 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 like that's fine that you say I don't belong, but I'm wearing this and so are you and I belong. And like, especially when you think of London as a whole, because I remember the first time I went to London and understood what clubs were, I was like, what? in the fuck is like this is crazy (laughs) but it's like so i wear this jacket and that means i can be here they're like yep like okay (laughs) actually that brings up a a question and i'm fumbling with my own book here but in your preface to the book and i hope you don't mind if i Mm. if i just read this out loud because i think it's worth everybody hearing um, you say style is about the freedom to be oneself, to authentically express oneself, and in doing so, reject limitations imposed by others. The consciousness of style, in essence, emerges when one asserts one's right to self-definition and the right to con- take control of one's own identity. Um, 
thinking when I read that, I thought that's a very modern sort of now way of thinking about style. And it's am- amply demonstrated by, by mm. the images you've shown in this book. But I did have in the back of my mind, especially in England, like there's kind of a, a more of an element of a social construct. Um, and you dress a certain way because it's your it represents your age or your station or as a desire to belong to like a social context. And it seems like that tension is kind of at the heart of of what's being achieved in the books. I'm I'm just kind of curious. Um, you know, do you think the idea of dressing as a way to express oneself is something that kind of started to um come into being with some of these individuals that you profile here? Or is do you, do you think that's kind of always been out there? I think ever since the, the teenager, the existence of the teenager, mm. that notion of being able to express yourself through clothing has has existed. And so that predates this period. Um, I think before then, it, you know, in the States and in the UK, it made sense to dress like your, your parents and not to see clothing as a way of um, distinguishing yourself, you know, in terms of your taste or your age. But once that that subculture or that, that generation started existing, it definitely became a, a vehicle for self-expression and self-definition. And, you know, even though it was marketed to and all the rest of it and kind of um, manipulated, that idea still, ex- still you know, kind of exists and, and continued. So when you think about punk as, you know, a, a kind of a, a rupture in terms of street style, they rejected a lot of the, you know, the values that were surrounding at the time and collectively opted to be, you know, individuals. Even though a lot of them ended up dressing very similarly, the whole purpose was to actually distinguish yourself from everybody else, especially from, you know, those who kind of aspire to be part of the mainstream. Mm. So, you know, I think it's uh, since, you know, since the teenager, it's, it's been a kind of a reality of, of culture that people push against the mainstream free clothing and style. Yeah. And I think you're right in a way that, you know, in a sense, that first couple of lines was, was me basically talking about, you know, my journey and then recognizing that within that there is, you know, I'm not that different to anybody else who's into clothing. And the book, you know, overall is about clothing and the, and the journey people can take through, through certain styles. So it was really about kind of, let's look at how, how important or how powerful clothing can be in our lives. And that's what this whole book is about. Really. Where are you on your journey? Uh, the cross, uh, crossroads again. Yeah, I'm always all right. <laughs> I'm always questioning, um, always searching, as, as my friend Kevin would say. Um, I don't know. I actually don't know. I mean, I'm back in London. I live, I spend a lot of time in Paraguay, where you end up basically wearing um, shorts and polo shirts and, and stuff like that, and t-shirts. Mm-hmm. And so I'm kind of delving in. You know, I'm going shopping in my attic and finding kind of vintage pieces I haven't seen in ages. And uh, yeah, I'm just enjoying my wardrobe again for a while. So. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I, I I definitely feel like in terms of you know one's like sartorial journey, it, it tends to coincide with their their current emotional state. <laughs> you know, like for me, I'm like, okay, I I feel good about myself today. I think I'm going to wear this. And other days where I'm like, I you know, today has been a weird day, and I'm going to wear it. And it's like it's an unconscious thing, at least for me into which what I, what I tend to, to gravitate towards, um, you know, also reflects where I am. And I, I say that too, where it's like when I was younger, if I was sick uh, from, you know, I didn't want to go to school, 
Um, I didn't have like tons of nice clothes, but I would have like, you know, a nice button down shirt. And my mom would be like, well, why don't you go put something nice on and see how you feel? And like sometimes, not all the time, I'll be clear, I would put it on and I'd feel better, you know? And, and I think that's, that there's something too in, in terms of the empowerment of just the clothes I had that I just, I felt like things were going to be okay. And, and not that, oh, fix the world by giving people a nice shirt. I'm not, not saying that in any way, but it is, it does help change one's perception. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, for me, if, you know, I have a tendency to, to look on the dark side of things. So um, what I do know, though, is that if, if I do feel miserable, I, I will go into my wardrobe and find, you know, I won't even find something great to wear. I'll just play. I'll play with my clothes. You know, I'll play dress up and that'll cheer me up. Mm. You know? And then before I kind of enter, you know, or head, uh, head out for the rest of my day, if I feel as though I've, you know, had fun dressing and I kind of look okay, then I will feel okay. Yeah. You know, because I've like kind of, it's almost like I've accomplished something, even if nobody else gets it. You know, even if everybody else feels like, like I look like a complete idiot. <laughs> In the back of my mind, I've achieved something today. And, and that's, you know, and so when I get home at the end of the day, I kind of take a look, not because I want to see how good I look, but almost to see if I've maintained that particular style. And if I've, if the kind of the magic is still there, if you know what I mean. I know it sounds weird, but no, it's not weird. I, at all. Yeah. I really do make a direct connection between kind of my mental health and my clothing. And I think a lot of people do that. Yeah. Was there ever a piece or that you're like, oh, this piece of clothing represents success to me? You know, for some people it might be, oh, a bespoke Savile Row suit means I, you know, I made it. Or, or it might even be like owning a record or a turntable or, a, you know, was there ever something like that? I mean, there was a point where I had a um, Omega Speedmaster. And okay. That, that you said had, represent. though. Wait, what yeah. happened? <laughs> I had to sell it. <laughs> it's all right. We all, they, that, that's, that's why we, we own watches, because one day you have to sell them. <laughs> I have to sell it. So, you know, there's, still, there's a sense of failure in having to sell it. But when I had it, I really did feel successful. <laughs> do, you, do you ever have a desire to get it back? Um, I don't know. I keep on having these markers, like, you know, at some certain point when I do this, I'm going to go out and get this watch, or when I do that, I'm going to get... But when I when I reach those markers, I think I can do something else with the money, or I can do, you know, it's like, do I really need it? So, so no, no, I don't think I will. <laughs> That's great, actually, because I, you know, one of the, like, jokes is, like, when I was first doing the show, I had been collecting watches. I mean, I still collect watches, but some of the watches I had were worth a lot more. And I was like, well, I, I want to keep this going. And so I was basically selling most of my watches to kind of, you know, keep, keep money coming in. And, you know, there's been a couple of times where I'm like, oh, if, if this happens, I could buy back this watch. And I would say I balked every single time where I've just been like, uh, you know, maybe not, you know, and it doesn't mean that like they're not worth owning, but it, I think there's, when, when it comes back around, sometimes just the joy that I owned it once is enough. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. You know, there's no question that collecting watches is a, is a beautiful thing, but right now for me, I, yeah, I'd rather travel. <laughs> so, you know, um, you know, one of the things that happened recently, which I think is amazing is there's been a lot of other incredible musicians and artists who have found your book and have really like latched onto it rightly. So, and I, you know, you got a big shout out from Tyler, the creator. 
Yeah. You know, uh, what has, have other people kind of reached out to you over this? Cause I mean, I'm not surprised, but it's great. Um, quite a few people have, and it's, you know, it's, it's really nice. And, but like when, when Tyler DM'd me ages ago, I was super excited and, you know, not excited for, for the obvious reasons, but excited because he was, he is like the target reader, if you know what I mean. He's one of the people who inspired the book in a sense who, who I, when I was writing it, I had him in mind. So it kind of just showed to me that it, it resonated with the right people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't, I didn't want to go and, you know, publicize the fact that Tyler was, was DMing me because that's kind of not what it was about, if you sure. know what I mean. So the fact that he, he didn't mention it um, live during the, the Converse talk was, was, was great because yeah. I, I would never mention it, if you know what I mean. Well, I mean, you're a, you're a gentleman. Like, yeah, you, you're not, you don't want to lead with all that stuff. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say I was a gentleman, but, but thank you. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm actually, um, you caught my attention when you said that in a way he's like the target audience for the message that you have. So what, um, in your mind, like what is kind of a good or positive or an intended outcome of, of having shared these ideas? I think that, you know, I'm hoping that people recognize that actually wearing a suit isn't necessarily conserv- an act of conservatism mm. or something that makes you part of a kind of, I don't know, was- or makes you want to aspire to be part of a waspish elite. Um, I think that I wanted people to realize that education was something that was super important, as well as, you know, the, the right to vote and the right to, self-exp- to self-expression. Um, I just basic stuff like that, really. You know, and also that that kind of style or, or clothes were kind of empowering. I really wanted, you know, that was was part of definitely part of the initial vision that actually, you know, you, how you dress is is potential expression of your own freedom, and mm. so you, you don't have to allow people to define you in in you know in those ways. And it's not really about how much you spend on your clothes or how you know up with the latest trends you are. It's basically about how you feel about yourself and how you, you want to view yourself. I think that was kind of, you know, the, the big picture ideas behind the book. And maybe, the, you know, it's the big picture ideas behind a lot of the stuff that I'm, I'm involved in. So, you know, like everyone has any one story, really. They kind of find different ways of telling the same story. So maybe that's... that's well, it does. That's I mean, Tyler, the creator, I think, has been well-known for his style since kind of entered the public consciousness or even before that because i remember he was kind of the guy who helped bring mm-hmm. supreme back to relevance for for young people yeah yeah i mean i i remember you know so when odd future was signed um because they were with- yeah they, they were an xl artist and yeah. i remember them coming in to and i think this is you know this is frank ocean this is all of them and um, they, they came into the, to the, to the beggar's office where I was at cause beggars, XL recordings, Matador and all them, they all shared the same office in, in the U S and this is on Hudson street, right across from PR consulting in this building. And they're like skating in the building, you know? And, and it's funny because it wasn't the first time any sort of musician had been in the building. I mean, people come in all the time, like Tom York pops in, you know, Adele pops in all that sort of stuff. And so you're, you're used to it. But I think they were some of the most like excited and charismatic dudes. And, you know, I, you know, I was like the, the guy who liked clothes in the office. So I was like, you know, trying to wear Supreme and Tom Brown and all this sorts of stuff at the same time. 
And what was really cool is I think their their manager at the time, I think Chris Clemens or Clemens was, so it was M&M's product manager um, at Sony pre this. And you know, it was him and his wife that was kind of running that stuff for him. And it was just awesome to see these guys just like love clothes. I mean, they were, and I think too, it, it helped that they weren't the, you know, they basically just had a mixtape, you know, they weren't the sort of, you know, this is pre him jumping on Jimmy Fallon's back. You know, this is pre even them being on like the full Tonight Show Tonight Show. It was like the the web series Jimmy Fallon show. So, yeah, this is this is when they did their sort of online little skits and stuff. Yeah, and they release a record online and then they take it off after twenty four hours. Yeah, and, you know that period for me was like mind blowing because it was so refreshing to see these kids who weren't kind of they were making rap, but it wasn't rap. They were, you know, into street style, but it wasn't street style. They were into Supreme, but they weren't, you know, the obvious Supreme kids. They were breaking so many rules. And not just in terms of their own style, but how they were delivering their style and their their humor and the whole lot. It was like, I don't know. I just, I knew, like you say, before all that stuff, the Jimmy Fallon stuff happened, they were already happening. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I mean, you could tell like they weren't, because I would say, and this is no, you know, ripping on any other artist. There were other artists who came in who felt very disconnected, and like the energy around all these guys w- was just so exciting and enlightening. And everyone's like, okay, there's there's something here. And even in my head, I was like, oh, these guys aren't going to be here very long. Like they're they're going to be on, you know, like this. They're going to be superstars in no time. <laughs> like, here, you know, here it comes, and it's it's great to see that. And I'm really psyched to see, you know all the golf wing stuff happen and you know him kind of like grow his he's got a skincare line or something now too i mean i'm you know happy for all those guys um but what's interesting is though do you do you think the guys who listen and check into blamo actually see any of that stuff as relevant so okay i think a lot of people I know don't, you do yeah i think a lot of people don't realize that the music industry as a whole and and i will be try to be very conscious to not rant here is does not serve the artist's best, like, it's it's not always in their best interest, mm-hmm. right? And this is not Very about rarely. the establishment or anything like that. And this has nothing to do with even 360 deals, right? So as a side, there is, you know, Rihanna was one of the first artists who had what's called a 360 deal, in which the um, the record label had basically a personal cut of her IP in perpetuity of everything that she did. Mm. And so if she did merch they got a cut of it if she did this you know because record labels are basically just banks with really good connections and a lot of times they do help foster and like push an artist further but for an artist to really make like serious money and and establish a real legacy um generally it's not going to be from music in this day and age especially with streaming music might be what you're known for but you know I mean, the the biggest extreme example of this is is you look at like George Clooney didn't really make all of his money until Casamigos, a fucking tequila, you know, company. So it's just like you have to jump into other things, and especially for people like Tyler the Creator and Rihanna and all these other artists. Like, I am overjoyed that they are basically, you know, that they're getting money and they're able to do that. The fact that Cardi B makes like a million bucks a month off of her OnlyFans, like genius good she should and i mean that that stuff makes me happy but i think for most people when they see that they think someone's like air quote like just selling out and and being you know 
And it's like, no, like, do you, do you really think they're making millions of dollars on these tours? Most tours lose money. The label's getting cuts of that. Their licensing deals are mm-hmm. next to nothing. But like that, that's just, that's, you know, I, I want that stuff to happen. And so I always also try to tell people as much as I can about it. So people can also champion that too, versus immediately use it to take shots at them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's one reason why I, you know, I've never worked for, I never had a full-time job in a record label because I'd only ever work on the bands that I liked and felt an affinity with, but also because, you know, you'd see record labels that the A&R people mm. outlive the artists, you know, mm. they have, a, and, and to me, that seemed like there was something wrong with that picture where the real talent right. is, becomes disposable and the people who kind of feed off the talent and know how to exploit it are the ones who really, you know, reap the rewards. So, um, yeah, when stuff started changing and, you know, streaming took hold and all the rest of it and people were making money, more money from merchandising potentially than from releasing tracks, I thought that was really exciting. You know, for a period of time, the, the, the industry, the record industry were, was on the ropes and I thought that was a really exciting moment. And so when Odd Future emerged, that kind of said to me there was this autonomy that was like born out of that period, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and so it's, it's great to see you know the whole kind of plethora of, of talent that's come come out of that because I don't know it's just like really inspiring. The only thing that's hard for me from that, and while I I'm grateful for this period that we're in now, is it feels it's so noisy to find to find new music and to really latch onto that. I mean, one thing that's been cool about Spotify and everything else is old music is just as new as new music mm. in the sense of like how you're discovering it, right? So I think it's great that people are getting into Steely Dan or Coltrane or whatever Blue Note stuff that they they want to jump into at the time. And they're also like, you know, listening to new music. But it's like trying to find that. Like I do miss sometimes when it was a label or some, even like an editorial platform that was really saying like, hey, here's the stuff you need to learn about and listen to and that. And now it's like, wait, this song's blowing up on TikTok, but it's like 50 years old or, and then who's this artist? And, you know, and so it's, I just wrestle with where do I need to focus my attention on? And so I get so overwhelmed by new stuff. I default to, you know, trying to analyze pet sounds for the 800th time, which is (laughs) Also realizing that music is, is one medium and mm. again, fashion is another medium and just talking is another. So why would we, you know, we always, we often expect to say Mick Jagger mm. to be able to speak for a generation and, you know, he never really could apart from through the music. And that was kind of almost by accident half the time. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, but I think that the current generation are more sussed now and more aware of the fact that they, they can use these different platforms to, to, communicate so it's almost like tyler's clothing brand Mm. is as valid as his music and the red carpet appearance that say frank ocean all made is you know is worth looking at in the same way that the the album sleeve is do you know what i mean because they're Mm -hmm. they're meant to resonate and they're meant to have an impact and all that stuff so maybe these are uh you know it's just different times i guess and we have to kind of almost like even though it's hard roll with it because we won't get another pet sounds yeah. or royal scam. You know, it's just not going to happen. Or, or if it does, then right. will we only realize it in hindsight? Well, I, I did want to ask you um, because of the extensive photography of of musicians in the book. Um, do you think that there's a kind of link to being able to make art that's distinctive and memorable um, 
and the ability to have a style, like a sense of pre presenting yourself through style. Um, do you think there's a relation? In other words, that somebody who's creative in one area, you know, that kind of spills over. So, you know, Tyler, the creator being a great musician sort of is some way related to his ability to make meaningful clothing or at least style choices. Mm. I think, I think it might be, I think even if, I think it's like a quality of attention in the sense that once you're aware that as a musician, that you can harness sound and make something beautiful, then it almost seems like a no brainer that you can harness something that you do every day, like, you know, put on a piece of clothing and make a statement through that as well. But also we project those meanings onto people. So you would project, you know, you'd see Brian Wilson in a, in a dressing gown and in a swimming pool. And somehow that has to mean something, you know, it has to mean something about his state of mind or the period of time that they're in or, you know, the context, the context, it all has, you know, all resonates with some bigger meaning. So on one level, yeah, I think you're right. People, if they have a creative um, capacity, then it can apply to other forms of expression, but also as an audience, we can kind of deduce other meanings from, from what people do. Oh, absolutely. I mean, case in point is there was uh, there was all of this, you know, I remember people were trying to understand more like Cary Grant style over the years, you know, and one of the earth shattering things happened when his daughter, who's still alive, communicated that, yeah, he did do, you know, bespoke stuff, but a lot of the things he wore was just what he bought like, you know, off the peg that was ready to wear that he just got at a local shop. And it was, you know, I mean, do you think like if, if McQueen was around right now, he would be like, oh yeah, I really spent four hours picking out which jeans I was going to wear. It's like, no, you, you, it was there and he grabbed it. And because, you know, this snowball effect of like idolatry of, of these guys, <laughs> of these people, it's turned into like, oh man, I need that yellow sweatshirt from The Great Escape. Or it's like, well, wasn't there a costume designer that did that? Was that really Steve McQueen? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but then there are, like, for example, you know, guys that I've worked with, like Paul Weller, um, Jerry Danners, and, and Kevin Rowland. Mm -hmm. They have an understanding of their music, but also they're really aware of the visual impact mm. of, of their clothing and their artwork and the whole lot, the stage performances, everything. So, you know, some people are, have a heightened awareness, I'd say. And, you know, also Jamiroquai is very, very particular about what he would wear yeah. and what he wouldn't wear and what brands he was into and all the rest of it. So I think, you know, it's currently, it's, it should be part and parcel of the work if you know what i mean if you're a musician to be fully kind of hands-on about the image that you're projecting yeah especially now when if you you know i'm not asking for anyone to sim to be sympathetic for kanye west but like the fact that whatever he wears is a like firestorm of sales immediately after and that you know he doesn't really i mean i'm glad he made his own clothing brand because at least he can wear clothes and actually financially benefit from it versus whatever he would wear. I mean, how many thousands of pairs of Dior jeans do you think that like, you know, him and Kid uh, Cuddy and stuff were, you know, were selling unconsciously to people. And I mean, yeah. it's not that this is a new thing. I mean, it's been happening with celebrities for eons, but just like, you know, I think as I see the, the gap between the, um, the artist and the, you know, the, the machine that is kind of trying to output that 
uh, I'm, I'm more in like, no, I'm for every artist trying to, you know, earn everything that they are basically pushing forth in the culture. Yeah. yeah. And this is, you know, when a, when a band would go on tour, they'd have merchandise, they'd have um, the booklets, they'd have the t-shirts, et cetera, mm-hmm. the posters. This is another, this is like a more sophisticated version of merchandise, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And a more considered version. We all want to buy part of it. We all want to have, you know, the pin badge, but now we can have the, the sneakers, you know? Yeah. What is some of the best artist merch out there for you? current or past like that you're like oh man that was a great whatever was it a shirt a zine i mean i think the thing that i that comes to mind is actually uh well the beastie boys grand royal series because it isn't quite merch but it is an expression of what the artists were into you know there's magazines yeah and uh those to me were amazing because if you're into the band you got a sense of what their their vision of the world was by looking at those publications. And yeah, I think that was, that's something that, you know, I've got the collection and I, well, I'm not likely to sell that like I did the um, Dynamical Watch, put it that way. <laughs> and that's how you kind of find out about some of these artists, you know? I mean, I mean, I think that's the great thing about it also that you, that through music, you, I definitely discovered, you know, discovered the world in a sense, because living in East London, you didn't have access to stuff that a lot of other people did necessarily. But listening to jazz music or Roxy music and David Bowie and stuff like that, it kind of opened the world to me and definitely kind of allowed me to to mentally travel, even if I couldn't physically travel. Um, I do remember when the uh, issue two came out with the head Thurston Moore's, you know, top 10 free jazz record list. Yeah. I do you remember that yeah. generating quite a bit of debate within my little circle of internet jazz nerds <laughs> yeah well maybe you, you had the advantage over me because i didn't really share that with anybody i didn't have anyone to share it with oh, yeah, if you know yeah. what i mean i think that's part of the, the issue that if you're into disparate stuff like i've been into then i mean i remember when and it sounds weird i remember when david bowie died and i was super surprised that so many people were upset because i didn't think that many people mm. liked him you know, growing up, I thought he was like, I was pretty much the only person I knew who was into Bowie. And so when he passed a few years ago, I was like really surprised that this whole, the whole world kind of stopped because, so, you know, in other words, maybe my experience of this stuff is quite isolated and I don't mm. really share it that often with, with many people. Well, I, I'm, there were a lot of brand new 24-hour Bowie fans that happened at his death. <laughs> you know, I, I think some of it was, as the media and other outlets started being like, this is who this person was, and this is the significant loss that occurred, you know, you should, you know, mourn this, that people kind of attached onto it. Because I remember in New York, I mean, I was in New York, and, you know, people were like lining outside his house crying. And I'm like, dude, live there for like 15 years, you know, like what, what, what is it? really all of a sudden you're crying? I mean, he used to come into the Apple store that I worked at, you know, and he, he had his, you know, his hoodie on. Um, but, you know, I remember seeing, you know, Bowie in the, in the store and just like losing my mind. And for me, it was more the fact because I got into Labyrinth before I was into <laughs> Bowie, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, well, it's, I was just a young kid, you know. I remember, you know, watching that. And then my dad later explains to me and he's trying to explain to me the difference between Ziggy and this. And I'm like, what the hell? 
They're the same person. <laughs> That's so interesting because, yeah, the, I mean, if you compare, say, and I don't know if this is a good comparison or a reasonable comparison, but like David Bowie to somebody like Roxy Music. Uh, what's the name of the singer? Brian Ferry. Brian. Yeah, exactly. Brian Ferry. I think at the time, like at a certain time and place, like you would have thought of them if you, perhaps if you lived in London, like, you know, okay, like you would have similar feelings about either one. Like they're both big, um, you yeah, know, style right. icons. But there's just something about David Bowie's like just kept reaching more and more of a, an audience and connecting with more and more people. And it's possible that he's connected with more people now than even when he was alive. Um, similar to maybe like Ian Curtis, right? I mean, Ian Curtis. Oh, geez. Yeah. Ian Curtis is a great example. I mean, it's crazy because I was, I was doing some like research into Joy Division versus New Order and, and unquestionably the New Order has sold more records, right? You know, they've had bigger chart hits, but if you go to like YouTube and like compare like plays of, you know, She's Lost Control versus, you know, Bizarre Love Triangle or something like that, there's just no comparison. It's, and I think it has to do with like, something about the struggle that they represent so maybe uh you know i i don't know do you, do you guys have an idea like you mean the the kind of the, the story around them rather than just the music oh what does what that story kind of signifies yeah maybe a kind of universality i mean like ian curtis right he wrote about his own struggles which are struggles that you know a lot of people go through right so maybe they relate to that but you know david bowie's always seemed like some kind of weird alien that <laughs> like I, well i mean because he, he, for most people, he, I mean, he kind of, his biggest success was like in, in the seventies in terms of record sales. Right. So, I mean, that, you know, you could do, make the same comparison with Nirvana, right. In the sense that all these young people that really identify with Kurt Cobain and, you know, Dave Grohl and, and Foo Fighters have like, do you think Nirvana would have sold out like Wembley, like 10 nights in a row? You know, it's just like, maybe who knows. Right. But it's just like, that's. The, the success and also uh, the, the lifespan career of of that but i think people like with any artist or painter anyone i think there's a um an empathetic connection that starts to form based around the trauma that the artist experienced and and the, i mean this ties directly into your book <laughs> which is like people are like i you know want to connect or I understand the, the the being left out, or the persecution, or the you know whatever that that is the the trauma and the angst of of everything that is that has happened from that, and like that's where you want to latch onto. And I mean, it, that to me is great. It's if we didn't have it, I mean, there'd be tons of other far you know more difficult mental health states mm. for people. So yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Just to put a bit of a style lens on it, I mean, David Bowie is like quite clearly an early avatar of you know androgyny or just like you know really leaning into being expressive in the way he dressed and you know the guy looks cool right i think there's nobody who's going to say he doesn't look cool yeah. doing it yeah but, but also i think that's the thing that he he took risks with his music but also his style and mm -hmm. and so did, did brian ferry um and i guess that's kind of in taking risks they they encouraged the the power of the outsider, mm. if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. They looked at the at the boundaries and um, they pushed at the boundaries. And I think that's one reason why they they still resonate, if you know what I mean, because you because we have the context. We know that, like you said, Bowie played, explored androgyny and and basically inspired people to to be more like themselves in a way. Mm -hmm. And so um yeah I I but I, I just didn't realize how many people actually did like it because, <laughs> because, you know, when I was growing up, I was the nutcase. I was like, 
you know, I like David Bowie and people are like, how can you like that guy? You know, what, what's, what is there about this music, this guy who dresses weird and plays this weird, these weird songs? Why aren't you listening to soul music and jazz music or whatever? And I was listening to those things, but I was also listening to Bowie. And um, it, yeah, the, I think part of it is, part of the attraction was kind of haloing the idea of being an outsider and allowing people to be themselves, even though they were, you know, just kind of beyond the mainstream. Right. Well, you mentioned um, earlier that you had you were part of a small group of people who just were enthusiasts of jazz. So, I mean, was that kind of your community yeah. in terms of? It was a club community. Yeah, people that you know, the guys I went to school with didn't leave mm. East London mm. mainly. So, I ended up going into the West End from maybe eighteen nineteen to clubs mm. on my own. Prior to that, I'd go into the West End to buy comics when I was like thirteen and fourteen. And to um, buy vintage clothes. Hell yeah. I started clubbing when I was like 18, 19. And and the guys that I went to school with and college with didn't leave East London. So I ended up hanging out with a group of people who basically I only ever met in that club environment. And um, pretty much that's how, you know, that community kind of developed. That people from all over London would just basically congregate in a club like the Wag Club or another club called a Solly Somme both which were in Soho, and um, you'd end up just, you know, not even necessarily knowing their real names, just, you know, just hanging out with these people who, some of them who had, you know, kind of like, like alternate identities in a sense, because they'd be, you know, somebody pretty normal during the day, and then they'd come to these clubs and it'd be this, this kind of, this micro star, et cetera. Um, I could never do that because I always knew I had to go home. I was, you know, I was just like this, this kid from East London. So I never, you know, reinvented myself, even though I knew a lot of people kind of did. Mm. But um, yeah, it was, it was, an, it's like another world where I did end up basically feeling more at home in these clubs than I did in East London. And uh, style-wise, did you, and I'm actually trying to, trying to trace back your, your personal style. I mean, was that influenced by where you grew up or maybe Soho or the West End or, you know, the album covers of, you know, where, where did that all kind of, start to fall into place pretty much i'm not sure i think i was into i got into clothes through my parents um and through watching tv you know 60s tv shows like um the avengers mission impossible you said Um, you mentioned comics were you a comic guy for a minute yeah i thought i was yeah i used to like drawing stuff as well so yeah i mean you know like uh my company was called the watchman for, oh, for reason. Yeah. Hell yeah. Okay. Um, uh, which wasn't my idea, but that's the most jazz sense. comic, by the way. <laughs> yeah. It's still coming true now. Everything, you know, things that happen now are like, oh, this is very watching. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It's very prophetic, that, that um, graphic novel. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I was, but, you know, I, I think I went into the West End buying comics from this place called Forbidden Planet, but partly because I liked going into the West End and because it wasn't East London, you know, it was just like an excuse not to be in East London. Yeah. I'm trying, right. I'm trying to think of how bit. to explain Soho to, you know, an American audience, but I guess it's something like not dissimilar to Soho in New York. It's the, his, like, I think the film industry um, yeah. it's based there. It's kind of like just the creative hub of. It's the creative hub, but it's also a seeding hub as yes. well. So yes. um, yeah, I was going to say there was quite a few things that was happening at Soho around that time too. Yeah. So. Yeah. And just around the corner from there is Chinatown, but then also there's all these 
really kind of expensive restaurants and cinemas. It was, you know, and there was tourists everywhere. It was, it was like tourist central, which really excited me because the idea of, of you know, feeling like a tourist at mm. home, that's how I kind of felt. So I kind of really enjoyed being in that in that space, if you know what I mean. Yeah, especially because I think when you, you keep talking about like you were coming from East London and if someone's been to London recently, they're like staying in East London purposefully. Mm. Like, I, I, you know, what it's evolved to now was definitely not, you know, what it was. Not that it was bad in any way, but maybe it's mm. like, I don't know, North London or something like Islington or something. I don't, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, Islington's interesting. It's like kind of at the border, I feel, of East and North London. Yeah. But, um, yeah. but yeah, East London, I guess, to an American would just be like everybody's going around speaking and calling each other geezer, right? That's like... It's a very working class. That's pretty much it. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much. <laughs> well, this has been a ton of fun, and I'm so so grateful for your time. Uh, before before we wrap, though, we, I just want to go through. This is a, we have like a series of random questions, and so you can just answer straight off the top of your head, um, and you know we can go from there. So, if you were making a YouTube how-to video, what would your subject be? How to leave a room without anyone noticing. <laughs> Wait, okay, hold on. Wait, how, how do you leave a room without anyone noticing? Well, you'd have to watch the video, wouldn't you? Uh, <laughs> damn it. Yeah, Touche. Okay. Nice. <laughs> um, what's the last movie you saw? Or or last thing you watched? Could be a show that you're into. How'd you say it? The, um, the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel? Maisel? Yeah. yeah. The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And you like it? I really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah it's a good show. Um, last album you heard? I mean, the last album I played. Okay, that's fine. Was Young Americans by David Bowie. Oh, yeah. Big. Okay. Um, what's the last thing you bought online? No, uh, nothing. I bought a pair of. I'm looking at them now. I bought a pair of uh, Sebago. Ah, campsites. Okay, campsites for my apartment. Beautiful. Just, yeah. Those are great. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the kind of Kenny Naro style. Yeah, like the, oh, the, the lug sole dock yeah. looking shoe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but for myself, I haven't bought anything in ages. I mean, the last thing I actually bought bought was uh, a tweet jacket from Drake's. Really? I was going to say, if with, with all the work you've done for Drake's, I don't think you should ever be buying anything from them. <laughs> Let's just be very clear with that. Mike, I know you're listening. Lay some out. What are we doing here? You've got to support your own, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and then what? the last question is, a movie or a book that when someone mentions, you feel they understand you? Okay, well, if it was a movie, then it would be The Thomas Crown Affair. Hmm. Which the one? Original. Ah, okay. Touche. Yeah, so the, the the McQueen Crown Affair versus the Pierce Brosnan one. Yeah. Yeah. Which is also good. Mm-hmm. It is. But... Yeah. Yeah. Well, what is it about that movie? The crime or the suits, all of the above? It's all of the above. I think I maybe over um, over egged the film, if you know what I mean. I kind of like really focused on it for a very long period of time to the point where I, I know literally every single line of every single scene. Really? And um, it's, yeah, it's that kind of film. Oh, wow. How many times have you seen it? Too many. <laughs> Way too many. Is there, is there, like, this is unrelated, but is there a movie or something that, like, you've, you remember loving and you watched it like later in your life and you're like, what the fuck is this? Like, what is this movie? <laughs> I had that happen to me with Bullet. Like, I Bullet was like the best movie to me of all time. 
and I rewatched it later and I was like, I don't, why did I like this so much? Like, I just don't, like, it doesn't resolve the way I want. It just, it just doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. I think I remember watching it um, with the expectation of it being amazing. I think that's and why. Like you yeah. coming away and thinking, oh, it's not quite, especially the way it ends. It's not quite yeah. the, the way I figured it. <laughs> I have a question. Um, and this comes from Matthew, who's like our, our, one of our resident uh, black ivyists. Um, and I think I will uh, kind of call back to what you were saying about, you know, what you were really heartened by Odd Future and just watching them kind of, you know, do their own like little rebellion, kind of pushing the boundaries of style. Um, he wanted to know if you thought there was another style and preface this by saying, um, you know, observing you're one of the most uh, well-dressed gentlemen out there. Um, so I just wanted to pass that along. Um, he wanted to know if there's another style that, um, that you see that young black men are reprocessing or subverting in a similar fashion as uh, the generation you cover in, in Black Ivy, um, or if there's even a need to do that. Well, now you mean? Yeah, yeah, now. Um, interesting. I think, I think some reclaiming is taking place in terms of street style, for sure. Mm-hmm. And... You know, there's a definitely a kind of it almost seems like a, a, a struggle for supremacy, pardon the pun, where um you've got the luxury brands who are using the language of, of street fashion to kind of make their million they make their millions and actually, you know, kind of mm. determine the way we dress. But also you've got these other brands and people who were who are, you know, basically kind of how can I put it? They're basically uh, looking away from all that stuff and and working in their style. And I, I you know, people like, um, uh, Oh yeah. Art comes first comes to mind who are, you know, they, they're using a street style, but it's not the one that you'd expect. And they're using tailoring and in a way they're kind of subverting tailoring, but they can because they're, they're tailors, you know? So I'm, I'm really excited about stuff like that basically. And also excited to see where this, this, you know, this kind of, you know, people like Saul Nash and Samuel Ross and, you know, those guys, seeing where they're going with, with clothing as well. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm curious as to where that's going to lead. You know, the, the essentials, the Jerry Lorenzo type stuff. I'm trying to work out where that's going to take us because it is within the luxury vernacular and there's a, a huge amount of kind of intellectual weight behind it. But it's still also kind of understated and, you know, there's a simplification going on that makes it different from the big, you know, fashion houses. So I'm, I'm kind of interested in that. And it is definitely, there is a, a what you call a black aesthetic mm-hmm. somewhere in there. You know, it's kind of rooted in that. So to me, that's kind of exciting, but I don't know where it's going to lead. Mm. You know, yeah. that's maybe I, it's, it's fascinating to see the, what's happened with like where fear of God started and where like Jerry Lorenzo and sort of the, mm. the more or less empire of brands and things that he's, you know, he's helped create, especially the Xenia fear of God. I mean, um, it's, yeah. it's incredible. It's, it's, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not that surprised, but I'm extremely impressed. I mean, it's just awesome. It looks so great. I'm so happy. So I'm with you, Jason. I think street fashion to me, it's endlessly fascinating because it's just, it evolves and it's like a conversation with the past that's rooted in the presence and rooted in a personal style. So yeah, I really love that. Yeah. And it also is, you know, it's really interesting how, the Belisiagas and the Gucci's, et cetera, are, are delving into this world and where that's going to lead. You know, I mean, I'm really kind of mm. I mean, it's the, curious it's the number one brand stuff. in the world. So it's, it's crazy. 
but yeah, it's the, it's the number yeah. one brand in the world. And, and just like, I mean, they're selling stuff like crazy. And I, I mean, when I was in Vegas, you know, there's multiple Balenciaga stores in Vegas and everyone that I saw inside the casino and roaming around, it was just, it's, I, I've never seen anything like that. I mean, Demna has like done some incredible stuff. Yeah, no, it's, it's amazing because like you say, it is about watching the landscape and kind of observing how we respond to it. And it's about consumerism. It's about, you know, marketing and the rest of it. But it is a, it's also about that kind of that territory of identity, you know, like who and taste as well. You know, it's, it's just yeah. super exciting to me just to watch. I haven't got any in my collection, of course, but, you know, it's, but that's not what it's about. It's not about buying the stuff for me. It's actually about just kind of getting a sense of, of yeah. where culture I'm glad going. that we're in, we're in a position that uh, you don't have to own all the things that, that you like, like, or respect, like, yeah, I don't need to own any of that stuff, but it doesn't mean that I hate it, you know? Cause I think at least initially when I was younger, it's like, well, no, exactly. I have to buy it because I, I, I think I like it. And you're like, well, I don't, I'm not going to wear this. <laughs> you should see my old closet of Balmain. <laughs> and, and going back to the very start of the conversation, Jason, when you're talking about just going by, by the shop and, you know, not, you know, you're not going to buy anything. I, I am a little vulnerable to you know just a really good explanation and i'm like you know what you know i just appreciate it so much um in this perspective i, I might just end up buying something that then i'm like yeah. two days later oh yeah did i buy this <laughs> yeah well jason thanks so much for joining us i really enjoyed this yeah a nice one this was great well jason thank you again so so much for your time this was this was really special all right we'll see ya thanks so much for listening and special thanks to jason jules for coming on Check out Jason's book, Black Ivy, a revolt in style available now. If you like the show, there's plenty more where this came from. And if you really want to get connected, join us over on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash blamo for exclusive in-depth episodes like this, our Slack community where our listeners and myself chat about menswear and everything else and more. We'll be back with season 11 in May. See you soon.